at Jared, we know devotion isn't a once a year occasion. And once the flowers have wilted and the chocolates have disappeared, you'll still want them to know how much you care. Dare to give a gift that lasts this Valentine's Day with our incredible selection of jewelry. From delicate rose gold to bold black diamonds, Jared has hundreds of pieces under $299 and exclusive collections you won't find anywhere else. Shop online or find a store near you at jared.com and dare to be devoted. Welcome to Troy Noons is an absolute podcast. I'm your host as always, John Casillo, and with me today is Dan Lyons. Hello, everyone. Sorry about that. All uh, good, put Dan. Put on the screen for a second. <laughs> quite, quite all right. Um, so, yeah, it's a bye week, but we have a lot to talk about nonetheless because Syracuse kind of sort of hung with uh, LSU, the, you know, number eight team in the country. I think, what are they up to this week? Number six? Uh, I think they're still in the six, eight range. Let me, let me look that up. Probably could have had that already but they're you know they're a legitimate top 10 team um highly regarded lsu tigers <laughs> yes yeah we hung with them and while we didn't really stop leonard fournette in any way shape or form um you know what i, I never really expected us to and i'm not sure that the defensive scheme was really designed to um to really completely halt him i think it was more designed to let him get his yards and and try to stop what we could elsewhere um, I, I'm. I guess I, I've seen really positive uh, feedback, and, and I know we talked about it after the game. But this is kind of some of the most positivity I've seen after a loss um, ever as an SU fan. And uh, I, I don't know what you've seen uh, a little more nationally, Dan, um, as far as how SU performed, or whether everything's kind of focused on how LSU performed instead. No, there, it, it definitely does seem like a, a bit of a different um, reaction from. Uh, well, actually, I'd say both the the Syracuse fan base on Syracuse fan base, and it, it helps that we saw that it was the most watched game of the weekend. Um, so there were probably more people paying attention to Syracuse outside of like bowl season than have in a long time. Um, but I mean, last year there were some games like the Clemson game and the Florida State game, which were pretty ugly. Um, where the fan base itself kind of knew the situation with SU and the, all the injuries and could be a little positive about how things worked out, where, you know, nationally the team was under, way under 500 and no one really cared. Um, this week, obviously, the team was 3-0 and entering the game, as LSU was 2-0. and um, LSU was the big story, but everyone was watching the game. They got to see the, a pretty strong uh, Terrier Dome crowd. Um, and Syracuse, it honestly is the first time in a while against a team like this where um, the only player on LSU who really seemed to overmatch Syracuse in a big way was Leonard Fournette, uh, which is to be expected because he, he does that. He's done that to everyone so far this year, and, and I don't expect that to change very much. Um, obviously, there were some mismatches uh, we saw you know, on the outside, which LSU wasn't able to take advantage of us all that much, but when they did... They found, you know, big gains and, and a couple of really big plays with Mal- Malachi Dupree. Um, but overall, I mean, it just looked like Syracuse was far more competitive in this game, um, even with all the, the injuries to Irv Phillips and, and Rob Trudeau was moved over a position and, and obviously Eric Dungy was out and you no know, Terrell Hunt. Um, 
and it was very encouraging. So uh, I thought it was a very strong performance, and I think that's bearing out in terms of what we've seen about the team on a national uh, level. Everyone seems uh, a bit friendlier when it comes to the, the outlook on Syracuse this week than they had been when we were just beating Central Michigan by one or beating Wake Forest by however much does that doesn't really count. Right. And you know what? It, it was an interesting, I know Sean wrote kind of, not a mea culpa um, post by any means, but more of a just quick, hey, there can be good here, despite what we've said um, in, a, in a game against a really highly rated opponent, when you keep it close, um, you know, as far as scheduling goes. Um, and and it's, it's interesting to me how the conversation shifted. I mean, even, even some folks that, that I found have been critical of us a fair amount in the past um, came around um, at least in part, you know, just to acknowledge the fact that we really did hang in there. I know some folks who really haven't paid as much mind. I mean, even guys like Kirk Herbstreet uh, were willing to, to give some praise over to SU um, for how they hung in there. And I think, you know, this is kind of step one. I think getting to 4-0 would also accomplish a little bit of this step one. Um, but hanging with an opponent uh, of LSU's caliber, I think also, you know, is building block number one um, in, in a lot of building blocks toward getting this program back um, to where it needs to be. I know even during Marone's years, um, there was always just that final hurdle and that was never really going to be clear just because we were in the Big East. Um, I know the one year, uh, in 2012, we started slow, um, had to dig ourselves out of a hole to get to bowl eligibility, Um Second time around, we started fast, but against bad teams, and we're in the Big East, lost quality teams, um, and that's why we never really kind of, and it was also our first year of bowl eligibility in a while, um, which is why we kind of mired there. Um, the only other time we've really had this sort of conversation going around SU um, in the last probably, you know, seven, eight years um, is after the West Virginia win when, you know, we were on national TV up against Rutgers um, on the... Uh, on ESPN2, and they were playing Cincinnati, I believe. Um, and, you know, SU obviously blew the doors off a ranked West Virginia team, um, was subtly looking like an Orange Bowl favorite uh, out of the Big East, and then obviously the, the wheels came off. So it's let's hold our horses on, on the 9-3 on the and three seasons, but let's at least see this as, as a good conversation starter for what's hopefully a very successful and, uh, and promising season. Yeah, and we were talking about it a little bit before. Um, I think we were all happy that uh, we we kind of cross over from where you can take like a moral victory in terms of oh the team didn't get totally run off the, uh, off the field uh, into a place where we legitimately could have won that game if a couple things just went a different way. Uh, and it was nice to hear Schaefer. Um, you know, he didn't he didn't put on like uh, the you know, everything must be positive at all times show like he did after Central Michigan. He was very clearly upset they didn't win the game, and I think that's the way it should be. I think uh, if you're going to be a big-time football program and and play teams like LSU, which I know we both have thoughts about in general, uh, you want to be able, you want to be in a position where you are upset about losing the game because it was very winnable, Um, which is not really somewhere we've been in a while, so um, even losing this game uh, the way it happened, I think um, it kind of, the way it played out. I don't think we would have even known it going into the game, but it it did make me feel better because uh, it very easily could have been a game that we were just like, you know, whatever. Uh, we got through that one. Let's go on to the next one. But it, it was close enough where where it actually felt 
just that that tinge of disappointment where uh you know if it, if it was a little bit more lopsided it might have veered more into like pure moral victory territory that no one got hurt and and everything else but uh Syracuse it, it definitely seems like we are probably closer to kind of getting to where we want to be than we even thought um entering this game and, and hopefully with some guys coming back um Eric Dungey obviously and Eric Phillips specifically uh we can really see where this team is I mean if they go to, go down to South Florida and have a, a really nice performance they're sitting in, in really good positions so um I, and, and this bye week came out a really nice time so uh excited to see what what the team finally looks like because it's been kind of a weird four weeks um and we don't really know what this like this full offense looks like firing at a, uh you know on all cylinders so I hope that the South Florida game we can kind of see in terms of like number of plays run and and breakdown of pass and run and not have to worry about playing Udali Zach Mahoney and really get uh, start to know what the profile of this team is because it's done a pretty good job of uh, doing good things without actually um, you know I mean we were obviously designed to have Terrell Hunt in there but. Um, We've done a nice job of winning games and everything without actually showing our full hand, I think, so far. Yeah, and you know what? I mean, I've said countless times on the site, uh, especially during the play-calling breakdown articles, that uh, that I'm not sure exactly um, what this offense is. Um, I know you and I have talked about it, but I'm starting to think that's a good thing. Um, the first quarter, I was a little um, put off by play-calling, but at the same time, if, uh, if Mahoney hadn't delivered some of those balls into the ground um, and it got into receivers on short routes. Maybe we would have turned it over, but it also would have established the pass a little bit more. Um, in general, I, I think what I love about Lester's offense is that, you know, you don't know what you're going to get from, from down to down. Um, and I think that was my biggest critique over McDonald where, you know, uh, and I talked to you and I talked a lot of other people about it after uh, the play calling breakdown article went up, which was you look and you could even see patterns from week to week. Um, the same plays being called in the same spot in the same uh, you know general direction. There was very little variance, reliance on the same guys, um, and obviously those bubble screens. Uh, now we're seeing really. I mean, the fact that they were able to incorporate um, a wildcat look. I mean, yeah, maybe they should have used Contarius Womack um, and put a little more variance in there because then you could have had uh, you know a run or pass option. But nonetheless, having Fredericks run wildcat a look we hadn't seen. Um, was a great one. Them sticking to um, a safe version of the option, um, despite you know minimal gains, to really keep them honest um, against the run. Another great call. Like I had my doubts about Lester um, after you know last year's fiasco at the end because I felt that you know we were really kind of running an uninspired offense and it was sort of mailed in in many ways, but. What we've seen so far, I don't think he's completely out, um, you know, in the safe zone and, like, you're 100% approved. But, um, you know, Lester's definitely in that, like, 75 to 80%. I'm pretty confident in what he's going to do week to week, win or lose. Um, it's going to put us in a pretty good position to, to win a game. Yeah, I think just the most obvious thing is, you know, despite having multiple quarterback changes, we've already had four guys uh lineup behind center already this year uh five i guess if you count jordan fredericks um this the pace of the offense and the flow just it's night and day from last season last year the offense never seemed to be confident in what it was doing just the body language and and 
the way they went through the motions, it always seemed um, confused and, and rushed and just unsure of, of, of itself. And now it the offense looks like it's been something that these players have been running for years, and it's only been really months. So I think that's just, you know, it's, it's not a super tangible thing that you can uh, look at the stats and, and say, but if you just watch the film this year versus and you pull up some film from last year, I think it'd be a, a pretty significant difference, just from what I remember. I, I unfor- well, probably fortunately, don't really find the need to do- look at film from last season, but <laughs> I trust my memory on this one. Um, and then, like you said, I mean, last I have no confidence that George McDonald would have found a way to, and not to pile on him, he's long gone at this point, but um, with a fifth-string quarterback, found a way to put up 24 points on the board against LSU, uh, and Lester did it, and you know, it wasn't pretty all the time. Mahoney was throwing bounce passes over the middle and, and you know, had a really nice performance for what he is, but struggled in a lot of ways. And the team still lost by 10 and was down a touchdown multiple times in the fourth quarter. And, if, you know, if they hit another big play, it's a tie game. So um, I think Lester deserves a lot of credit. Uh, obviously, we were both critical of the decision to promote him, and I still think that's fair as well um, based on what we knew and what, was going on with the program, but Schaefer stuck to his guns, and, and you know, this could end up being a, a very nice win for him. Um, so far, all the all the early reads are good. Uh, so, it'll be interesting again to see what, what happens with South Florida here. Um, this should be a team that we have a pretty definitive advantage over. Um, obviously, it's the first road game, which presents some interesting issues. Um I'm looking at their stats now. Their defense is definitely ahead of their offense. So if we put up, I mean, they're not LSU, um, but they have some some pretty talented players on that side of the ball. Um, so, it, I mean, if, if Syracuse puts up, you know, a healthy 30-something points, I think uh, they're in good shape to, to win this one, and, and that hasn't been a problem for the team so far. No, I agree. And, you know, I mean, again, not to pile on McDonald, but... I mean, he was—he struggled to put up 24 points with, with a first-string quarterback last year. <laughs> Never mind the fifth stringer. So yeah, I, I think the offense is really—and and, you know, this is something you and I talked about in the preview show and on the blog—was um, that if this—if this team can even get marginally better on offense um, and and stay relatively similar on defense, you know, they were looking at two or three more wins, and that's bowl eligibility. Well, you know, through four games. Uh, the offense is markedly better, um, especially on first down, which is something we discussed last week. I discussed on the site, and I'll discuss every week until further notice. First down effectiveness. I mean, we're running you know 12 plays on first down um, of five or more yards every game. I mean, that is a huge, huge difference maker. And I don't have those numbers exactly uh, from last year in front of me, but I guarantee that they were below five. Um, and considering there were less first downs overall, um, considering that, you know, there were less possessions, less plays run. Um, having such a low, low number just showed, like, how quickly all those drives would burn out. You're seeing, no matter who's a quarterback, uh, Syracuse is able to, you know, kind of fire off, uh, you know, right from the gate um, a game and, and set up a drive for continued success. Um, it's, it's strange to see. I mean, you, you know what, even... I mean, again, don't have all the numbers in front of me, but I, I would bet that even the Marone teams, um, even at the height of their effectiveness, probably weren't great on first down, um, from what I recall. 
Um, and it's nice to see a team really, you know, not feel like they're behind the eight ball for an entire drive, but, you know, picking up a lot of first downs. I know, um, and again, this isn't a, a stat that I picked up, and I don't really know if anyone does track it, but um, picking up first downs on first and second down I mean, is just so huge. It really takes a lot of stress off um, linemen when it comes to blitzes on third, uh, when you're probably going to pass. Um, it takes a lot of stress just off quarterbacks, especially when you have young guys um, who don't feel like that pressing need to, oh, I have to convert here. Um, and, and I think overall it, it's had... It's had more of a, of a positive outcome for this team than I think we're ever going to really be able to quantify. And, and it allows you to kind of do whatever you want on offense in, uh, in terms of play calling. If you're not running into third and eights all the time where you, you're more than likely going to pass and you're constantly picking up first downs early uh, early in, in the, the set, um, I mean, it, it keeps you very varied and you can kind of run anything in your arsenal. Uh, and it makes it a lot harder for the defense to key in on things. I completely agree. Um, I guess we might as well talk a little bit about the uh, the run D um, from last Saturday. Now, while they didn't stop Fournette much, and admittedly uh, maybe some over-pursuit kind of freed up some holes um, against Fournette, it seemed like they did a pretty fantastic job stopping anyone else from running the ball, which I, I thought was, was encouraging and was a sign that you know, no, they might not be one of the top five running defenses in the country. They're probably still in the top 30. Honestly, I really didn't have a huge problem with how they how they played Fournette. Um, he broke a couple really big ones. That's going, He's going to break big ones every week. Um, and, you know, compared to, like, the Auburn game where he didn't get a touch in the fourth quarter because they were up by so much, uh, they needed Fournette out there, um, aside from the... the series where he came out just he got hit in the groin um he was playing the whole game uh and aside from a couple big plays i think su did a really nice job kind of limiting the the chunk yardage he picked up he didn't have a lot in between like there weren't very many 15 yard runs or 20 yard runs it was the couple big ones and then you know you obviously don't want your the opposing running back to pick up like seven yards on a regular carry but um overall i think they limited him about as well i mean it's early because they've only played three games but i I assume outside of like alabama and ole miss there won't be many other teams that do even as well as su did maybe they won't have like the 70 yard or 80 yard run or the the ridiculous flip that brandon harris pulled off which was probably his best play of the game but um i don't know how many other teams are going to uh, get him in the backfield as many times as Syracuse did. So if you just take away, I mean, taking away the big plays is not fair. But if you do, I think the SU defense did a pretty valiant job against him, considering you know what a monster he is. Um, I mean, I, when when Donnie Simmons made that play in the backfield, I was shocked. Like I didn't think anyone was going to stop him in his tracks like that, but uh, he did, and. Tordy had a nice game, took him down a couple times. Obviously, the quarterbacks were overmatched, but I think that's going to be life for everyone in the SEC going forward. So, um, and, and the next couple of weeks, LSU has a really easy schedule. So I think uh, our performance in Fournette will look a little better uh, once LSU is going up against like Eastern Michigan and uh, they have a couple other really pretty favorable teams. South Carolina, who's not very good, and Florida's defense is decent, and Western Kentucky, so... I don't think we're going to be alone in having given up a, a ton of yards in these crazy plays. Um, and I think SU's, I, I think uh, the numbers 
don't look quite as good as what SU actually managed to do against him. Yeah, I, I would definitely agree there. Um, you know, like I said, I think I maybe saw some over pursue, but at the same time, I, I've heard plenty of opinions to the contrary that uh, that legitimize it. And, and and like you said, you take away a couple of big plays. I mean, obviously there was that other uh, run that was called back too that could have been an absolute disaster. Um, but if you know, if you look at it as the goal was not to let Fournette beat you, but give Fournette a challenge while making the uh, the remainder of the team beat you. Um, I think, by and large, mission accomplished. Um, you have some better play in the secondary, perhaps, um, and and those uh, those couple of big balls from uh, from Anthony Harris, uh, you know, don't make it into receivers' hands. It just seemed that uh, there was just a few too many pass plays um, that allowed LSU to pull off a ten point win. That's not to say that we were, you know. Uh, the upset bid was thwarted, uh, or like an extreme upset bid was thwarted anyway. But, um, you know, I'd say starting with the missed field goal at the end of the first half and then rolling into the second half uh, for LSU to kind of go up, uh, you know, early on in that third quarter. Uh, that was kind of where not it was buried, but um, the distance just became a little insurmountable based on what LSU could do on the ground and what we were able to do um, through the air. Yeah, definitely, and um, obviously it didn't help that uh, the one time that LC needed to make a mid-pass play, they were able to do it two plays in a row and get a touchdown. Uh, yeah, that kind of sealed it. no one covering anyone. <laughs> no, not that I expected anyone to cover anyone. I mean, I've, I've come to learn that, you know, when you get past, like, the 10-yard cushion, or, or when you get before it, really, if you're not 10 yards out, you're going to be open. Um there's a very fine line where Syracuse plays past defense. That's fair. Um, so I guess looking a little bit at uh, at some of the advanced stats, I know we did this a little bit last week. Um, we'll try to do it a little bit shorter um, while also uh, you know picking the more engaging stats of all. I think for me, uh, we kind of touched on this explosiveness. SU's 32nd in the country um, in explosiveness. Uh, that's huge in my book, um, and finishing drives. It's something that we were just deplorable at last year. Um, and, you know, in all of our trips to the red zone, we've only failed to score once this year. Uh, that was the missed field goal uh, by Cole Murphy at the end of the first half. Uh, we scored a touchdown on nearly half of our trips. I, I think that the red zone offense has just sneakily become something we don't have to worry about through the air. Um, as far as running the ball, I'm a little more worried. Um, but again, if, if we can get it in somehow, um, I, I'm, I'm much more comforted by that. I think it just comes with having more options. Um, obviously, we uh, Strickland's carries, or his touches haven't been, you know, he hasn't gotten a ton of uh, opportunities yet, but he, he stored, what, three touchdowns and like 10 carries or something? Yeah. Or 10 touches overall, something like that. I mean, the guy knows how to get to the end zone. Um, Frederick seems like he'll end up being a pretty good red zone option. He's a very powerful runner. Um, obviously, when Dungy comes back, he's, you know, the option, I think, is always a fun. I mean, I mean it's, it's a little risky, but it's a fun thing to use near the end zone because it, you know, forces defensive players to make the right reads. Um, and we have guys like Custis, who's starting to get a little more into the, we saw a little more of him last week after his touchdown against Central Michigan, and uh, I think Ben Lewis could end up being a really nice red zone target. He's probably our, our one of our better possession receivers. 
you know, Steve Ishmael's just great, obviously. Um, it just seems like we have a, a very interesting array of weapons, and they're starting to feel out their roles uh, in ways that they haven't in a couple years. Um, and Lester is definitely calling, you know, he's definitely finding ways to get guys open. I mean, that throw to Ben Lewis for the touchdown last week, um, you know, great throw by Mahoney. He was definitely more comfortable throwing to the to the boundary. Um, Lewis seems to almost be on like an Alec Lemon path where he had um, some really bad drops last year, and now he's looks pretty sure-handed, and he's putting those past him. Um, so I, I'm I'm encouraged, and and you know, even if we're getting held to field goals a couple to, uh, half the time, it's such a market improvement over last year where they just could not score. Um, I think it's it's definitely encouraging. Yeah, and you know what? You actually took the words right out of my mouth as far as uh, Ben Lewis. I think he, uh, I think that that catch no catch uh, situation against NC State um, had an impact on him, whether whether he'll admit it or not. Um, it's great to see him so well utilized uh, in this offense. I know we talked about it before the season. I felt like he was a big key to this thing running well. Um, you know, he just he has he has a deceptive amount of speed. Uh, he probably isn't like a full-time slot receiver, but he, he provides variance. And, you know, is despite what the, the Ben Lewis jet sweeps and Ben Lewis, uh, you know, backfield tosses are, are not doing as far as yardage pickup, what they are doing is they're making him a wild card for defenses. Um, and it's really, you know, creating some questions um, for the linebackers um, in particular, which then opens up uh, stuff for whoever's throwing the ball, whether it's Dungey or Mahoney um, in the middle of the field. Um, as well as kind of, you know, toward the boundary. I know that's kind of where Mahoney operated, um, but I think we'll see things come back a little bit uh, when Dungy returns, hopefully, hopefully, hopefully against USF. Um, one more thing about the offense before we kind of uh, start departing into halftime. Uh, tight end. Uh, I felt that uh, I said before the season, you know, tight ends um, are a huge, huge asset to any kind of West Coast-style offense. Uh, they're a huge asset to young quarterbacks. Um, I didn't see that really from Dungy. Um, I felt like tight ends, whether it was Kendall Moore, Josh Paris, were doing more blocking and doing well, by the way. But uh, I felt like Mahoney, on the other hand, really kind of knew where Josh Paris was at all times, was using, willing to use him as a safety valve. And I really do hope um, that Syracuse does a lot more of that uh, because, I mean, if you're gonna if you're gonna play like Dungy and you're gonna be able to find anyone on the field, then then sure, great. But um, you know, sometimes with those checkdowns, you can just find Paris is a big target and he's a guy that you know with the ball in his hands, he can get some second chance yardage. He can be a good um, you know option um, within the red zone. He just has he's a lot more versatility than I think he's been used with, and I, I hope that this is the year that that's kind of discovered by this offense. Yeah, for some reason my I'm trying to unmute and my phone keeps on going black so it won't it won't let me. Um Yeah, it's being bizarre. Um No, I I agree and, and last year they like really couldn't have used the tight end less. So um even the the little that we've done so far and I just ca- calculated it out while I was trying to get my phone to work. Um between Paris, Moore and I guess we threw one pass to Cam McPherson at some point. Um, we're targeting the tight ends 
just over 18% of the... We're targeting the tight end 18.3% of the time total, which is the same as we are targeting Steve Ishmael by himself. Um, I think that could tend to drop a little more because I do agree that, that Paris is probably a weapon that we want to use a little more. Um, obviously, Custis isn't listed as a tight end, but I think he's in that same group of just kind of big targets. You want it near the end zone. Um, so hopefully we, we see a little bit more from uh, once Dungey gets back in and he gets comfortable with him. It's still... With him, it seems like, you know, there's been so much talk about Dungey, but between the, uh, you know, because he got knocked out very pretty early in Game 3 and he, he didn't play the first, I mean, nearly all of the first game, he played really, like, two-plus quarters, um, were really only, like, what, like, a game and three quarters of, into Eric Dungey's career, yeah. truthfully. So it's tough to, like, totally know what he is. Um I think we all think he's going to be pretty good, but uh, it, it's a really small sample size to kind of see what his actual like uh, tendencies are and what his strengths are. Um, we just see little things here and there. Um, but really just one full game under his belt, and the, the Wake Forest one where he was pretty rough for the first half and, and quite good the second half. So um, hopefully he starts to, you know, he expands the field. He'll definitely expand the field compared to Mahoney, who for whatever reason just did not complete passes inside the hashes I, I heard some people say might be like a, a defense reading issue which is definitely a possibility considering LSU has a really nice secondary um, and doesn't do too much in terms of like exotic blitzing uh, it didn't seem like they're more trying to disguise their coverages so um, we're actually kind of got lucky that uh, he did put some of those balls in the dirt because they were not catchable by anyone um, and I was actually surprised he was able to do so much on the outside in terms of, you know, making big plays there. Um, but yeah, the tight end, definitely something that has worked well for Syracuse in the past. Um, if you look at how Nick Provo was used, he was pretty prolific uh, his last couple of years. Uh, and we have a possible really good tight end uh, looking at the stool now that we might want to impress. Not that we should base our, our uh, play calling on that, but it, it certainly wouldn't hurt to have, uh, you know, Josh Paris have a nice like eighty yard game coming up when a certain someone's making a decision. Yeah, honestly, I, I would love, love, love. I mean, you know what? Moore and and, uh, and Paris are going to ride out their time. Um, I mean, they're both juniors, and I'd love to see um, Dunkelberger and, and Clark lined up. I think that would be really, really. Uh, Tough to, to tough to uh, you know cover to be honest. Like give really two huge targets, two guys you can really catch the football. It seems like at least Dunkelberger has had a block as well. Um, I didn't really you know take a look at any of the tape on Clark, but um, having some targets like that uh, would be uh, really a great asset for a guy like Dungey. Um, you know, especially you know he's so great at throwing on the run too that. It, uh, it would make sense that a tight end would kind of be there as that kind of last resort if he's running away from pressure but not running to gain yardage. Um, and I think that that's something you'll see from him a little bit um, as he matures, whether it's this season or next season. Um, I think that's going to be you know those those quick dump-offs to the open tight end because he's a huge target. Um, that's where you know a guy like Dunkelberger can come in. It's where a guy like Clark perhaps could come in later on. Um, and it's where a guy like uh, Jamal Custis can come in this season it's insane we've only targeted him twice but both times in the end zone i think uh i think custis is gonna eventually work his way much much more 
into this offense than he uh, than he has been so far. Yeah, and and obviously Chris Clark was who I was referring to. He's uh, a now UCLA transfer who Syracuse was the first team to offer him out of high school. He went to Avon Old Farms up in Connecticut. Um, he originally committed to North Carolina and then committed to Brady Hoke at Michigan. And then Brady Hoke got fired because apparently Chris Clark didn't pay attention uh, to how that was going to happen. And then he flipped to UCLA on signing day. Um, I've seen some people like be kind of stiddish about going after him. He's a five-star player. Those don't pop up for Syracuse all the time. Um, and I don't think SU's in a position to uh, not look into a player like that, um, no matter how it comes about. So, I mean, what's the worst-case scenario? He's not going to bring down the program by himself if it doesn't work out. I mean, we had Quinta Funderburg, who wasn't quite as uh, highly touted, but he was a four-star player coming from SEC school, and he didn't work out at all. And the program just was what it was. So um, I think it's I'm all for bringing him in if he wants to come. Um, it sounds like uh, he's going to be here over the weekend, which is kind of weird because there's no game. But um, that would be a big, a big win for SU, even, you know, just if it gives us a shot of having a player like that. And if it doesn't work out, you know, I, I don't think he's going to uh, be the bane of the program. Uh, if he's disgruntled or or whatever, I saw a lot of people like really overly worried about stuff like that. I think. Yeah, and you know what? I, I think some people might grab the Thunderbird comparison. There might be some others. This is a very different case than somebody who's a four star who plays a couple of years at a big school and doesn't work out, and then they come to Syracuse as a, as a rebound. This is a guy who was a 2015 five star um, player, one of only like 19 guys to receive five stars for most of the recruiting services. And he's, uh, after one game and a couple weeks on campus, he, uh, kind of homesick and wanted to be a little bit closer to home back in Jersey. Um, I can't really blame, like, I can't blame him. And I know I saw some, some criticism about him. Um, like, how could he be homesick? Why didn't he realize this? Like, well, you know what? Like, there's plenty of adults who live right near where they grew up. There's plenty of adults who live thousands and thousands of miles from where they grew up. People can be homesick. People can, you know, feel like they need to be closer to friends and family. Um, that's a little bit easier um, to compartmentalize when you're 25 versus when you're 18. Um, and, and, you know, th- this kid is literally months removed from being a five-star recruit. It's not like it's years later. Um, who knows if he comes to SU. I like our chances a little bit based on who we're up against. Um I think that, to be honest, um, this weekend's NC State-Louisville game might go a long way toward uh, toward whether or not he uh, he heads toward the Wolfpack. But, you know, we'll see. I don't really know what's in his head right now, and I'm sure he might not even either at this point. Yeah, and he had kind of an expedited uh, decision to make once Brady Hoke was fired. Um, and I saw, you know, there was still a lot of criticism of him. Um and I get it's kind of weird that someone would like not want to play or not want to play at Michigan after uh, Hoke getting switched out for Harbaugh, but you have to think about how those two coaches are. Um, Personality-wise, they're incredibly different. Obviously, Harbaugh is a much better coach by all by all accounts and and based on everything we've seen, but um, he's not someone I imagine everyone wants to play for. So, uh, and, and Mora is actually kind of similar. Um, I mean, we saw how Mora treated Josh Rosen this summer, and 
and obviously Rosen's handled it fine and, and has been really good so far as a freshman, but you know, not every kid is going to respond to every coaching style exactly the the way that is uh it's meant and um coaches when they're recruiting kids i mean they're selling so you know a coach might not be the guy that a, a recruit thought he was committing to so you can't I, I don't know i i don't like judging uh 18 year olds on making a decision that wasn't right for him and you know good for chris for figuring that out early and and moving on um you know, maybe it doesn't work out. Maybe there is something about him that uh, it doesn't uh, speak highly of, but I'm never going to, you know, get too worried about a kid based on him not making a correct college decision because what is it, like a, a quarter, a third of regular college students do the same thing? So um, if we can get him, I'm all for it, uh, and I hope uh, he has a good time this weekend. It should help that he did have a lot of contact with SU early in his recruitment, so... He's 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 probably more familiar with SU than he is with any of those other schools on the list. But obviously, it's it's hard to tell how these things will shake out. Agreed. I think that's a good way for us to uh, segue into beer. Um, Dan, what have you been drinking? Um, a lot. (laughs) I was up in Syracuse over the weekend. Yeah. Uh, so was able to get a lot of the local favorites or just the the you know, stuff that I, that's, you know, you know, was on tap at certain places. Um, spent most of my time around the, the campus area, though we did go to Blue Tusk and a couple other places. Um, the highlights, uh, Southern Tier Pumpkin, um, I might end up bringing this up every week. I don't <laughs> care. Um, same, and, and also about, you know, Ballast Point Grape from Stolpin had that too. If that's around, I'm probably going to get it. Uh, Founders All Day. Uh, something I talk about a lot was the go-to tailgate beer. Um, maybe not the greatest thing in the morning, but, you know, it did the job. It was really early. Um, had some, some old Fagan standbys. If it is apricot wheat, uh, UFO raspberry, Hefeweizen. Um, uh, also, uh, there was some Bells, Two-Hearted, which always I haven't had in, in a little bit, so that was always nice. Um had some Abita with the LSU folks. Um, they were also, the LSU people were great. Like, I know we weren't really into scheduling SEC teams, but um, in terms of, like, making up for the fact that it was a almost definitely going to be a loss, and, and it, it helped that it was a lot closer than we thought. But the LSU fans, like, they lived up to the billing in terms of, like, just general friendliness and being really fun. Um, so if we're going to have to play a team like of that caliber, uh, definitely would rather it be LSU based on my interactions with a lot of those people this weekend. Um, and then some other things, uh, I went to Chuck's, so honey Brown happened. I don't know how I feel about it the day after, but, um, (laughs) that's the reality of the situation. And then tonight I was, uh, at dinner before the show, um, was able to have, uh, some shipyard pumpkin head, which is one of my other favorite pumpkins. Uh, that's not Southern Tier, and Two Roads Honey Spot Road White IPA, which I bring up a decent amount. I haven't had that in a while. Um, and also, I didn't drink at the game uh, itself, but I noticed around the Dome, it seemed like there was a lot more... Um, they, they, they definitely... I mean, since last time I've been there, at least, or I don't know how recent a development this is, but there seemed to be a lot more um, local things available throughout the, the concourses. So you, there was... 
I saw plenty of uh, Middle Ages, um, some SPA, some some stuff from Empire, uh, some stuff from Saranac. Like not just at like one or two stands, but um, even at some of the the uh, the pop up ones, just kind of in the middle of the concourse, which was cool to see. Um, and saw a lot of people drinking them too. Not not as much Labatt, more uh, more Middle Ages, more Empire. So very uh, always support that. Very nice. Uh, gives me yet another reason to head back soon. Definitely nice one-stop shop. Some SU Sports and Syracuse area beer. Um, so yeah, for me, I was down in San Diego uh, for part of the weekend. Thursday night through uh, Friday night. And stayed for the Padres game and then drove back. So no beer at Petco uh, Park, which is depressing because that place is loaded. They have an entire beer concourse. Um, Dallas Point has a restaurant in there, as the Stone. Uh, it's loaded with beer. I highly recommend going there for anyone in or not in the area. But uh, some of the things I drank: uh, Liberty Station, uh, Stone, one of Stone's several locations in the San Diego area. They had their second anniversary Mocha IPA. It was a chocolate and coffee um, IPA, and phenomenal, phenomenal beer. Um, you know, Stone can be a little adventurous sometimes with their non-IPAs, and sometimes they're hits, sometimes they're misses. This was an IPA, this was a hit, uh, and very much so. Um, I would recommend that beer to anyone. I really wish I had been able to get a growler of it. I uh, forgot mine up here and was not going to buy another growler. My wife would have divorced me. Um, some other things I had. Uh, Stone also had a barrel-aged brown with sour cherries. Um, I really, really like that one a lot. Um, stopped over at Ballast Point's uh, tasting room and uh, R&D kitchen over in Little Italy in San Diego um, and had a couple different things. Uh, their Captain Secret Punch was, I believe, I want to say Passion Fruit Lager. That sounds right. Um, we're going to go with that. Also had, um, had Stone's Encore um, 888 Vertical Epic Ale uh, over at their... Uh, their Liberty Station location. Another really enjoyable one. Had uh, over at Pizza Port, The Burning of Rome. It's a double IPA from them. And uh, Modern Times, which I mention a lot around here, uh, Fruitlands was their uh, Cherry Goza. And just very, very, very good beer. Uh, fresh, delicious. Um, it was pretty hot down there, so it was nice to uh, get a little relief from that. Um, had Monkish. They had their St. Citra. Uh, it was a Belgian pale ale with a citra hop focus, as you might be able to uh, to glean from the name. Uh, had the Kern River Shuttle Bunny, their uh, their anniversary double IPA. Um, picked that up down in San Diego and brought it back up here. Um, then I had a very interesting one that I wasn't a huge fan of, but you might have liked, Dan. It was an IPA Rattler from uh, from King Harbor. It was uh, kind of a, an IPA brewed with... Uh, like a lemon soda zest and um, really had a, a very light flavor a little sweet for me um but i'm definitely more on the bitter side um but yeah it was a it was a good drink to have while uh, while hanging out by the pier i've not seen an ipa rattler or anything like that but uh definitely interesting i think it i mean i i think it has to be pretty citrusy to begin with to really work though i, I imagine that's what it was yeah All right, so the second half of the show, or well, at this point, the back quarter of the show, 
and talk about baseball. So for those who aren't baseball fans, sorry, Sean, um, this might get painful. Dan, I know, uh, I know you are clutching pearls over there with the <laughs> with the Cespedes news. Yeah, apparently he, it, it came back negative, so it sounds like just a bruise. But I watched it and like immediately cringed. Uh, it, uh, we're, the Mets game is on now as we're recording. I think they actually just went down to sits the Phillies are up sits five. Um, it's not like a super meaningful game, but the Mets and Dodgers are both kind of playing for home field in that series. Um, but Cespedes got drilled in the wrist uh, by a fastball a couple innings back. Um, it definitely looked like something that could have been like a broken bone. He went down pretty hard. Uh, it sounds like it's not, but you know, obviously you never want to see your, your power hitter get nailed in the wrist by a team that's like a million games out um, like a week or two before the playoffs. But hopefully it's it's uh, all negative like is being reported. Agreed. That was the first thought that I had uh, when I saw that come up on Twitter. Um, and that goes for one team that I uh, have an affinity for. Um, but some might call me a traitor. I would not disagree with them. Dan and I were joking about it last night on Twitter after the Los Angeles Dodgers, a team which I hold season tickets for, um, clinched the NL West, their third straight um, such title. Um, two of the last three times that they've done so, the uh, San Francisco Giants have proceeded to win the World Series, which uh, irks me to no end. Um, luckily, they won't be making the playoffs this time around. That's a relief. Um but Dan, how do you uh, how do you view um, the Dodgers, or in particular, how do you view Clayton Kershaw, who is just a terrifying individual, um, professionally, personally? Just seems that uh, I mean, I, I know that I think you know Mattingly was just completely and utterly terrified to to even suggest taking him out of last night's uh, you know one hit shutout. Um. I'm going to hope that all the people who are really dumb and think that there's something with Kershaw being like a bad postseason pitcher is not just like a small sample size thing. Um, I'm going to hope that they're totally correct and he just bombs out when the calendar flips to our for some reason that doesn't make any sense. Um, but I'm unfortunately, I don't think that's going to work out. I think Kershaw's really good. I think Grinky's really good and maybe better this year. Um, I'm not as worried about the Dodgers bats as I would be the Cubs or the Pirates who killed us this season. Um, but when you're facing two guys like Kershaw and Drinky, it's really tough uh, to bet against them in a, in a short series, especially, I mean, the Mets have great arms, but, but Harvey and, and DeGrom, you know, they've had, they've been really good this season overall, but they've been a little shaky down the stretch. I'd say they're, they're throwing more innings than they're used to. They're both really young. Whereas drinking and Hersh are pretty, you know, they're they're legitimate veterans. Um, so yeah, I mean, you're never going to face an easy team uh, in the in the baseball playoffs. It's one of the nice things about the, I mean, even with the expanded like extra team each league, I think it's it's the most exclusive playoff in American sports, which is nice. Um, and for for us Mets fans, I mean, oh, it's there's a little bit of like us just being happy to be here because we're at least a year ahead of where we anticipated heading into the season. Um, most didn't think this was a playoff team and it, and it wasn't a playoff team until Sandy Alderson made some moves to pick up guys like Cespedes and Juan Uribe and, and Tyler Clippard. Um, but at this point, I mean, it seems like it's, 
but it's tough. The both teams are good enough to, I think, run through this whole uh, side of of the the playoffs and go to the World Series. I think the Dodgers are probably the safer bet in terms of you know being a little more experienced. The Mets, um, I could see them just totally going in the tank, and I could see them going on a ridiculous tear, uh, which they seem to do like in in two weeks spurts at the end at, at this point. Um, unfortunately. It, you know, we don't know what Cespedes' status is. I, I assume he'll be okay for the playoffs, but he's been a little cold, whereas guys like Lucas Duda are heating up. Um, it all really comes back to the pitching. If we can get Harvey and DeDrom to, to come close to matching what Brinke and uh, and Kershaw do in the first couple of games, assuming those are the matchups, I think the Mets have a decent shot. I think their bats are, are as good or better than the Dodgers, but... Um, it's scary. <laughs> I don't want to really. I, I would love to not have to go against those two to lead off a series, but um, here we are. So, um, I guess I'd ra- I'd rather face the Dodgers and the Central teams, but it's it's not going to be a cakewalk by any means for for either side. Oh, agreed. You know, you said this before. This is a nightmare scenario for me. Someone that may or may <laughs> not hold dual fanships. Um, this is why if you're going to hold dual fanships, never do so in the same conference or, in this case, league. It's really stupid because your teams can face one another before you even get to the championship round. Uh, I will say, uh, looking at it now, uh, the Dodgers have obviously gone on their own hot streaks and struggled, uh, and struggling especially in this last few weeks. You know, they got swept by the Rockies, um, lost the first game to the, the Giants of this series before uh, pulling off a really big 8 nothing victory last night. Um, I, I think that the key to this series, more than you know, previous Dodgers teams um, under this uh, management, is uh, the fact that this this rotation is too deep. Um, it, it's it's just Kershaw and Granke, and if you can beat one of them, uh, you stand a pretty good shot um, at winning um, a, a series. And that's the thing where the Mets have a, a pretty distinct advantage. I mean. Um, Assuming one of Harvey or DeGrom can beat one of Cranky um, or Kershaw, now you're looking at Syndergaard going up against um, probably a god-awful Alex Wood, um, You know, maybe a Brett Anderson or a Mike Bolzinger. Um, I'm assuming one of those three gets cut, probably Alex Wood, to be honest. Um, you're probably looking at a Brett Anderson who's been serviceable, um, and he's actually stayed healthy all season, but um, he's an older guy. He's just not... He's he's not your typical third starter, and if it was up to the the Dodgers, he wouldn't have been the third starter. Um, obviously, uh, alluding to season-ending injuries for uh, you know Hunjin Ryu and uh, and Brandon McCarthy, which obviously would have set them up as the third and fourth starters. This staff was not supposed to be too deep; um, it was supposed to be a little bit more well-rounded. So yeah, I, I think if the Mets can steal one, and, and Dan, that'll lead to my next question. Um, do you think that the, the Mets are better off um, playing this one with home field advantage, or do you think it's it's, it's a wash? Um, I think we want home field. Uh, I, earlier in the season, I would have it wouldn't have even been a question. The Mets were were destroying teams at City and playing like four hundred ball away from City, and that's um, the road the road split has really moved back. Uh, kind of regressed to the mean, and the Mets are playing pretty good baseball on the road now, too. Um, but I still think this team... I mean, the, the two ballparks are, are 
they're both pitchers parks, so it's not like you know one's a band box that the Mets uh, would have to worry about. But um, I think you, you definitely want home field where available, especially for a guy like Cinderdard, who um, I could almost see them pitching him in the first two games at City if the Mets hold on to get home field. Uh, he's been a little better on the road as of late, but for most of the season, he his splits were pretty crazy. Um, he was dynamite at City, and then he would get shelled on the road. So um, I, I still like to have that advantage, um, especially with the pitchers being so young. I, I, I like having them in, in environments where they're pretty comfortable. Fair enough. And, yeah, I, I think it's always, it's always the better bet. Um to go with that over obviously especially in this case you're looking at a a 3,000 mile trek um, for for both teams and and the fewer times you have to do that especially when uh, potential game five would feature likely um, you know Granky or Kershaw you know the guys who at this point will have won you know four of the last five Cy Young awards Um, not the best uh folks to go up against but yeah i uh i guess how do you feel and you know this is me being several years removed now from uh from being as uh as as down in the weeds in the day-to-day for the mets um do you still feel like the other shoe is going to drop um i mean i know personally as someone watching a little bit from afar both uh literally and figuratively um it never really felt like things were completely wrapped up until they were um are you just waiting for the inevitable collapse or, or, or are you allowing yourself to be optimistic? Uh, I'm trying to allow myself to be optimistic, but it's very difficult with this team. Um, even, even just tonight, the, the Cespedes thing, like I was, when that happened, I was pretty sure he had broken his hand. Uh, and it doesn't sound like that's the case, but you know, but the Mets, you're, you, you don't even have to like be an, a, a pessimist to expect uh, it, everything to go, as poorly as possible and down the stretch this year um i never felt totally comfortable until once the magic number got to one i felt pretty good about things considering there was like a full week of games left um but it's hard i mean the last since 20 uh, 2006 or i mean really even including 2006 with the way that uh cardinal series worked out um it's been tough i mean i haven't seen a championship the closest we've gotten was getting destroyed by the Yankees in a World Series, which is brutal, being a Met fan. Um, and then the last, since 06, just what happened in 07, 08, and then just as a long grind back, it's, uh, you know, it's been very, the, the, the happy moments have been very few and far between, and we've been grasping on to, like, singular players and singular performances rather than actual full team and this one is is really a special group and probably my favorite met team to date honestly but it it is hard to just not wait for some crazy awful thing to happen um even if we're like way exceeding expectations for the season already i mean if you had told me in april you know the mets were gonna win 90-ish games and win the nl east and and go to the playoffs i probably would have signed for that no matter what happened after that but now you know, we look like a real contender, and and I, I think they have a very good shot of beating the Dodgers. But you know, I could see something terrible happening, and, and Harvey and Degrom both getting bombed in the first starts, and then it being all over immediately. So, 
Uh, hopefully that doesn't happen, but with the Mets, like, you could tell me literally anything, and I'll be like, yeah, that's possible. That could happen. Yeah. I mean, at this point, I would, uh, I would definitely agree with you. I, I think the Mets are always, uh, I guess, the, I mean, this really does go for any team, uh, especially with, with the way that the, the MLB playoffs are formatted. I mean, anyone can beat anyone in a five-game series. Um, you could put have a five-game series between the, the worst team in the league and, and the the best and i'd say that there's at least a 10 percent shot that the worst team uh you know can get out of that series um in, in that five game format um i, I think this is going to be an interesting series regardless of, of where it is or or uh you know who's healthy and who isn't i i think I think it really just depends on which team is going to going to write themselves first. Um, I know both teams have been streaky all season. The Mets, in particular, um, have gone on some really nice runs. The Dodgers uh, put gave themselves a really nice run to put some separation between them and the Giants um, going into this week's series. Um, so I think really whichever team you know gets out of their current like five hundred ball funk um, first, that you know they're obviously going to be the ones to get out of that round. I mean, baseball, unlike um, unlike the NFL. Um, and unlike probably you know college basketball, a team that goes on a run at the end of the regular season doesn't really mean anything um, going into the postseason. It's much more similar to to hockey and uh, and basketball in that regard, where you know anything can happen. The season basically hits reset, um, and you you can never you know say with with any certainty that a team at least in the last ten years to fifteen years. Um, it's just going to win. I mean, the last team that I was fully and 100% confident um, they're going to win the World Series uh, was probably the uh, the 98 Yankees. Or the last team that I that I watched, I sat there and went, yep, <laughs> like World Series title is no doubt about it. Um, so, yeah, I, I think with those days over, I know some people are willing to, to put all that money on the Cardinals this year. I, I think let's hold off. Let's, let's understand that. The uh, the wild card game provides a uh, a huge huge boost for teams um, from a morale standpoint from a momentum standpoint. Um, I think it's almost become a bit of a punishment for the uh, for the top team in each respective league to have to face that uh, wild card winner. But yeah, you know anything can happen. It's going to be a fun month. Yeah, I think we can all agree that um, I hope the Cardinals get swept immediately. I think everyone in the country is a <laughs> is, is a fan of whoever the, is facing the Cardinals. Yeah, the the Cardinals are the worst. They're the worst. The Giants are also the worst, though they're not in the playoffs this year. The Yankees are the worst, but they uh, hopefully won't last very long in the playoffs this year. I am uh, I I am hopeful that uh, that the nightmare Cardinals Yankees uh, setup does not happen. I have only had to witness two real nightmare um, championships in pro sports in my lifetime. Um, of course, referring to the Eagles Pat Super Bowl and uh, and then the Yankees Phillies World Series. These were yep. things that I did not enjoy um, in any way, shape, or form, and I would never like to see again. Yeah, I mean, luckily the Phillies are kind of uh, circling the drain, but. The Yankees-Phillies World Series was brutal. I was rooting for the Yankees. It was painful. I, I don't even remember. I, I don't know if I was rooting for... I think I was just rooting for, for mayhem. Like, like legitimate... I, I was hoping, like, 
the Huns would invade or something. Like, it was... <laughs> I couldn't deal with that series. And Yankees-Cardinals would honestly, like... That would, I, I think that would actually be worse. The be... Cardinals fans are the absolute Horrendous. worst people. They're so annoying. It would be such oh. an argument of traditionalism and gratitude and playing the game the right way and, and just things that things that no one deserves. They're like if you like took everything that's annoying about Notre Dame football fans and like condensed it into like a steroid and injected it into baseball fans. Oh, honestly, like I know like and, and this isn't a this isn't a criticism of the people I work with in St. Louis necessarily, but I work with a lot of people in St. Louis because that is where my company is based. <laughs> and and the things about the Cardinals, Jesus Christ, uh, it just never ends. Uh, especially so classy. Yeah, the, well, the classiness, and I mean, you, you know as well as I, uh, you know that the Cardinals are not you know graceful in their uh, their victories in the uh, in the playoffs between '06 with the Mets, which is a series that uh, haunts my dreams forever. Or, uh, you know, the last two Dodgers series, too, was so much talk of class and all this, like, BS. And, you know, you watch those games, and it was a lot of Cardinals running their mouths. Um, and it's, it, it's similar to a lot of the, the Yankee crap that we saw at the end of the, end of the 90s into the early 2000s. Um, it's just trying to create an aura. You know, the Cardinals fans seem to forget a pretty dark uh, stretch for that franchise, um, from the late 80s through um, the early 2000s when they finally got back on their feet. I mean, even the McGuire um, years were largely uh, spent in the cellar of the NL Central. Um, and, and it is kind of funny to me how uh, how quick the uh, the memory just fades away. Yep. A couple, uh, you know, a decade of, of pretty solid success will do that. I don't think, I, I don't know if the Mets would ever be that. I think the Mets... Mets build in like just disappointment and self pity uh, so quickly into their fans that I, I think the Mets would win like five straight World Series and you'd still be waiting for for the team to implode. So um, <laughs> we, we we just own it. That's our our identity as a fan base. Where the Cardinals, you know, we have people arguing that Yadier Molina is a better player than Mike Trout. So, uh, baseball playoffs. At least I'm, I'm happy to be involved, but. Man, I'm not looking forward to. Uh, actually, I, I don't know. I'm looking forward to seeing maybe that the Turtles, because they haven't looked great down the stretch, just get like run by the Pirates or the Cubs. Uh, I'll be very much uh, rooting for those, whichever one comes out of that uh, most that likely wild card game. Agreed. Um, and yeah, I guess we'll end our uh, our bye week slash baseball podcast there. Dan, thanks as always for joining us. Yes, go Mets, go Syracuse, go everyone else. Go Syracuse. Not Cardinals. Go not Cardinals. I'll say go Mets and Dodgers. That way I can continue to uh, to sit on the fence. And I Just hedging so hard. I mean, I'm not even hedging. I'm, I, I'm being completely <laughs> and utterly honest about the fact that I'm a traitor. I get it. But since I hate the Cardinals so much, and I also kind of dislike the Cubs... Um, I'm going to be rooting for whoever wins this series in the NLCS anyway. So I'm not, like, I'll be completely real. I will not be buying a t-shirt regardless of if one of those teams win the World Series, you will not see me with a t-shirt. I will not celebrate the victory as my own because, let's be real, either way, it isn't. And that is the moral of the story. When you want to split your fanhood, you end up feeling like you are part of neither. 
You're a man with no country. Correct. Luckily, I have well, a very orange country to uh, to go back to whenever I feel like it. <laughs> and that's and that's Syracuse, obviously. All right. Well, <laughs> perfect place to end it, Dan. Check your smoke alarm. Yeah, I know. It's been going on the whole time. It's been. I come home for one day, and apparently my smoke alarm is just going. I haven't been able to do anything about it. I've been here all day. Fair enough. It's awful. All right, go orange. Go orange. <laughs> With 25% off all new and up to 70% off previously leased furnishings, do you really need a better reason to party? We don't think so. Come visit our new Court Furniture Clearance Center with more than 9,000 square feet of new and previously leased furniture and decor for your home and office. Sofas from $199.99, bedroom sets from $399.99, dining sets from $299.99, and more. Free food, prizes, and fun all weekend long at our Chantilly Court Furniture Clearance Center at 13946 Lee Jackson Memorial Highway or go online at courtclearancefurniture.com.